ice your knees and you'll be uh, fine in just a moment. My name is Seth, one of the pastors here on staff. I get to walk us through uh, this text today. We're in the middle of the book of John, kind of taking step-by-step look at how John is showing us Jesus, not just giving us facts and info about him, but they're showing us him. What is he like? How does he treat people? How does he connect with people? How do his relationships play out? And so we're trying to look at him. And this text in particular um, is a lot of text. We've got 42 verses. And so I'm going to uh, help us kind of see how the whole narrative hangs together and really zoom in on a couple key aspects rather than kind of walking in the gritty um, details through each verse. So I'm, I'm kind of in a fun season of life right now. It's probably one of the easier seasons of life I'll ever have again. But I, we have one son. His name is Jade. He turns one years old in like two weeks. So he's kind of in that like phase where he's like mobile enough to be fun to play with, but not so mobile where you're like chasing him down and stuff. So it's kind of like this great um, medium deal. But we took him to the zoo yesterday for the first time and you know it was cloudy and it wasn't super hot so that was great. We went to the zoo. I was a little bit nervous about going to take him to the zoo mostly because the day before he had spent about three hours being entertained by a balloon. And I was thinking, why would I go somewhere if I have a balloon, you know, it's like he's in the season of development phase of life. We're like, that's all you need. Why would you uh, spend a bunch of money to go be entertained by? But anyways, we went to the zoo. So we went to the zoo and took him in. And I was kind of nervous because I have all these memories of the zoo as a kid, which is basically like the lion is getting surgery. The tiger's taking a nap. The elephant's behind the big rock. You can't see him. And you'd go and you try to see all the stuff at the zoo. And all you end up seeing is like a bunch of habitats and like injured birds. And I was just thinking like this... I was kind of preparing for a lame zoo experience, but we come walking in, and my son's in like a great mood. He's, um, you know, all uh, excited and stuff, and we come walking in, and we go straight to the elephant exhibit, and right when we get there, there's like this elephant right where you hoped it would be, like 15 yards from the edge, just grazing away, eating stuff, and there's like the more the people gathered around the elephant, like, wow, the elephant's right there. Like, the elephant's usually like behind that thing, but it's right here. And so all of like my childhood zoo wound memories were being healed because like, you know. and so I'm holding my son, I'm trying to get him to look at the elephant, but there's also pigeons eating stuff right here. And he's zoned in on the pigeons. He's just looking at, watching the pigeons eat, you know, and the pigeons are flying and landing. He's like, you know, he's kind of like trying to say words. Everything is just that or that. So he's going, that, that, that. And he's doing that to the bird and like, yeah, elephant, you know, and I'm trying to like turn his head to see the elephant, but it, I don't know if it was camouflaged well, but he didn't see it. He was just zoned in on the birds. I'm like, we have these in Gilbert. I didn't need to come to Phoenix to see the bird, but he's looking at the, but it was a, it was a good reminder to me of, uh, of this just reality. That is, who you are determines what you see. All right. No judgment on my son and the birds, um, but a little bit of a mirror for us to hold up. Um, what do I see? Because what I see is going to tell me something about me at least as much as it's going to tell me about the person that I'm seeing, right? Who I am determines what I see. Who you are determines what you see. And in this text, we just heard the story that they've read, and there is a, a woman, a woman from Samaria, a woman from Samaria married five times, currently living with not her husband. What do you see? Because who you are determines what you see. And what we're going to see in this text is that the Samaritans saw something, uh, the Jews saw something, Jesus' disciples saw something, and Jesus sees something. And if I'm honest, um, 
we don't have a good instinct to see people the way Jesus sees people. And so I want us to really spend some time trying to get uh, this interaction between Jesus and this woman and really a little bit be confronted by uh, the reality that who we are determines what we see in here. And so this is going to be a big idea. So the, the goal here is love, right? But if the big idea is who you are determines who you see, therefore who you see determines who you can love. You cannot even love people if you don't see them for who they are, how they are, where they are. I'm not just talking about like looking at people like they're camouflaged. I'm like seeing them in the sense like you, 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 you see them and you know them, seeing with the eyes of knowledge, seeing with the eyes of love. So who you are determines what you see, and who you see um, determines who you can love. And if the goal is love, we need to think about who am I seeing and how am I seeing them. So let me pray and then we'll walk through this text. Jesus, thank you for um, John who constructed um, this book that we can read as a faithful account of what happened with the way Jesus treated people. I pray that we uh, would see ourselves and that we would see our biases that we bring to interactions. And I pray that Wizard Redemption Gate would be a people who um, see through the eyes of Jesus, not anything else. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Amen. So the first chunk of this text is Jesus is going from somewhere to somewhere else. And when Jews used to go from this place to that place, they used to kind of take the long route because in between, the shortest route was a place called Samaria. Samaria um, and Samaritans and Jews did not get along, partially for um, ethnic reasons. There was ethnic tension between the two, but also partially for theological reasons. Um, they, the ethnicity gap kind of produced theological tension. How, what is the right way to worship? What's the right means of worship? And so Jews, generally speaking, speaking, just avoided Samaria. They avoided um, Samaritan. There's a really famous story about the, um, the, on the road to Samaria, you know, the good Samaritan. And so this was a real kind of like both ethnically and theologically confronting place for Jews. And Jesus kind of goes, I'm not doing the avoid the tension thing. I'm going through Samaria. So Jesus and his group go through Samaria, and he gets wearied from his journey, and he gets tired, and verse 6 says, it was about the sixth hour. He sits down beside a well. The sixth hour makes about noon. So it's hot, he's tired, he's in a place where there's like real possibility or certainty of tension, and this is kind of where the scene Unfolds. The disciples say we don't have any food, and they go off to get food. And while that's going on, um, a woman, verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. You know, when there's a well, you need to have an instrument, a jar to put it down in and to rope it back up. And so you need something to do it. Jesus is obviously just sitting here. Without that, Jesus says, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to get food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, this is verse 9, um, really kind of read, read this heavily. I, this is maybe the first time this woman has ever been spoken to by a Jewish man. Can I have a drink? She goes, first word, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, emphasize these two words, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Probably culturally at that time and in this place in particular, there was like the social hierarchy was Jewish men, Samaritan men, Jewish women, Samaritan women. That's probably like the social hierarchy we're dealing with here. So we have kind of the man, from the Jewish man talking to the Samaritan woman. Um, that's the way the social hierarchy plays out. There's also a question this time like why is she getting water from the well at noon? 
you, you kind of probably have heard like in the workplace, there's like the water, the water cooler conversations, like the place you go, you chat it up, you connect with each other, and there's this kind of um, moment deal. Most time it was, it was kind of the well was maybe potentially socially unsafe or even just literally physically unsafe, and so people would go in groups like with their little kind of um, uh, folks would go together and grab water together as kind of a social experience as well as like a, a help experience, and here she comes um, probably by herself at noon in the hottest part of the day. So what that kind of tells you is like even among the hierarchy of the bottom piece, you have the Samaritan women, she was probably like notches down there, right? She didn't, not only did she not get along with all these people, but among her kind of lowest social totem, she was even lower, right? She's like, I came at noon to hopefully avoid being seen, and now here I am, someone's talking to me. So there's some measure of like maybe shame or like rank. Um, so there's a, a question, what's going on with this lady? Um, give me a drink. Um, Jesus answered her. She says, who do you think you are asking a woman of Samaria for a drink? Jesus says, if you knew who I was, if you knew the gift of God, you'd ask me to give you living water. And verse 11 here is, is interesting. I just want us to see like how long she talks for, verse 11 and 12. She, uh, John Calvin describes her as a little bit sassy even, like, a, oh, living water, <laughs> oh, oh, fan, you know, pinkies up for the living water, because the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep, where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well? This, this well's been providing life for generations and generations, now, now tell me, tell me about this living water. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but everyone who drinks of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So this is the first kind of, he drops a theological word, eternal life. Jews and Samaritans knew about this idea of eternal life. It was promised in the prophets. And all of a sudden, it kind of like clicks for her that, oh, this is like a, Jesus, this is an object lesson situation here. This is no longer, we're not really talking about this water, we're talking about something else. So Jesus drops the theological word and she kind of changes her cadence, changes her pace. She says, sir, give me this water. Then I'll not be thirsty and have to come here to draw water. Kind of going, I went from like a who do you think you are thing to like a, now we're kind of talking theology, eternal life. How do we get that? Help me out here. And then Jesus says to her, go call your husband. And you might have had this moment where someone pushes your button and you go. And there's like a clam up, a cramp up. And then she gives the shortest sentence, I have no husband. She went from chatty, kind of sassy to, oh, living water, sweet, yeah, show me your invisible bucket, guy. You know, who do you think you are? I have no husband. You know, like when you kind of aren't expecting to be pegged, aren't expecting to be seen, and someone kind of, oh, so you're like this, and you're like, I didn't know I showed you those cards. I have no husband. So now we're kind of seeing, why is she here at noon? Maybe we'll find out here. She says, you're right in saying I have no husband. If you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What we've said is true. So here's what I want to pause here for a sec. Um, so we have some facts about this woman. Right? She came at noon, Samaritan woman, and now we have 
this fact that she's had five marriages that ended, and now she's living with someone who is not her husband. So as Redemption Gateway, we can say, what do we know about her? Because even in just saying those facts about the person, uh, we have a tendency to supply a narrative to those facts, right? All I know, because there's not, the text does not tell us what happened in those previous five marriages. We can make assumptions, we can fill in the gaps, but the way we fill in those gaps tells something about ourselves. I would say, when I was growing up, I was taught this text like adultery, 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 cohabitating sinfully. Right, and here's this sexually promiscuous woman who um, keeps going to the well. Maybe. I mean, is that in the text? No, it's not. And so here's what I want us to th- recognize is like we have to supply a narrative, and the narrative we supply affects how we see the woman, right? Clearly, the Samaritans have written some narrative about her that's made it so she's uncomfortable to draw water in the morning and she comes at noon. I want us to step back here and kind of even just wrap our heads around a little bit more about like first century uh, culture. So I have a buddy who grew up in Romania and he was talking to me. He kind of moved here when he was like in his 30s, so a kind of thick uh, Romanian accent. He was talking to me about how uh, in some of the neighboring nations to where he grew up, the economy was so bad and like the, the, these places had such a low view of women that women's opportunity to like go and get a job and provide for themselves economically were so low that really like the number one career choice of women was wife and the number two career choice was prostitute. And like a lot of these neighboring cities to like where he grew up. And so there was really like either you get married right and it kind of sticks or you can choose to die or you can choose to survive by making money using what you have. And this is, and so this is like real patriarchy, right? Uh, Take that back to like first century in particular uh, where women's economic opportunities were, you know, they could buy and sell land sometimes under like their husband's name, but... Not only that, you add to this reality that people died young all the time. We didn't have like a pretty good death expectancy thing. Like nowadays, it's like 77, 78. Uh, there's young deaths. But you add to that, that especially like the Jewish folks um, in the, the Hebrews, the Samaritans at the time, they had like a hyper no-fault divorce that could be initiated only by the man. So the, the husband could, whenever he wants to, just say, burn the beans, divorced. Bad attitude, divorced didn't birth me children, divorced. And then the, the woman went from married in a house to homeless like that. So most of the commentators, most of the first century kind of people who look at that culture, that time, that place in this text, um, say serial adultery is not an impossibility, but it's probably the least likely explanation for what's going on in this text. Most likely, it was multiple husbands died or multiple husbands just disowned her. What narrative did you write for the lady? 
taking a step back from there, what narratives do we write with the people we interact with all the time? You meet someone, get a couple of facts, construct an identity, a narrative about who they are. Because who we are determines what we see. And who we see determines how we're able to love. So anyway, what Jesus doesn't do is he says, yes, you have no husband. Let me tell you about sexual morality. No, it's not what he does. I see you have no husband. He said, it's true. He affirms her assessment of what's going on. The woman says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. So it's interesting for this lady, she has a category of prophet. She has a category of eternal life, category of prophet. And um, she, she goes, oh, here's a prophet right here. Here's another reason why I don't think this is a serial adultery situation is that she has like a lot of faith and she's done a lot of theological work. Her answers, de- her questions demonstrate that she has done some preliminary research here. She goes, okay, so you're a prophet. You can read my mail, all right. Um, our fathers worship on this mountain, but you, the Jews, say we should worship in Jerusalem. Which one is it? She goes, I'm not gonna sit here and just kind of do like the, you know, how'd you do that magic trick game, but I'm gonna like, hey, if you're a prophet, I wanna find out some stuff. What's the best way to worship God? Like, there's a seed of faith there if you're concerned about what's the best way to worship God. And he gives her a theological lesson. He goes, you know, this is, it used to be about a place, you know, the temple, but actually now that um, the spirit is coming, it's about worshiping spirit and truth. It's no longer about a place, but it's about a person. It's about worshiping God from the heart, both with accuracy, truth, and with the spirit of joy and love given by the spirit of God, spirit and truth. It's, and here's what worship's really about. That's what's going on. Jesus answers her theological question, and she kind of goes, this is verse 25, okay, you know, you got your opinion on this question. I got my opinion on this question. And this is what I love in verse 25. She says, I know that the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, we'll get this settled. <laughs> He'll tell us all things when he comes. So she has a category for profit, a category for eternal life, and a category for the Messiah is coming, and he's going to clear up all our confusion. She's done some work, she's done some thinking. She's going, okay, you can talk theology, that's fine. We can agree to disagree, but when the Messiah comes, we'll get this all cleared up. And Jesus says, he who you speak about, I am he. I'm that man. I'm the Messiah. And then the disciples come back, verse 27. This is the part that breaks my heart most of all this. The disciples come back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one asked, so to her, no one asked her, what do you seek? And no one asked Jesus, why are you talking with her? I picture this scenario, Jesus talking with this woman at the well, kind of having this like meaningful relational interaction. Jesus sees her, sees her past, helps her theologically, tells her she's a Christ, is treating her like, even though man after man after man has disregarded her or sinned against her, maybe she's, you know, maybe like one of her marriages was her fault, like she committed adultery, but that's like that, if she was a serial adulterer, she wouldn't just get remarried. You know, you don't have a fifth marriage after four adulteries in a row, especially in that little town, word would have got out. But here's this man not disregarding her, treating her like all other men have, having this mere fraction, and here come the disciples with like bread and cheese, and they just marvel and say nothing. And it just seems like such an awkward 
interaction. And verse 28 says, so the woman left with her jar, left her jar. You know, great interaction with Jesus. Here come the disciples, not asking, not leaning in, not seeing everything. Like, why is he with this woman? Well, we'll just wait her out. And she leaves. I kind of feel like that's often a story where it's like people start getting interested in Jesus and then they kind of connect with Jesus and then it's like, then they meet his people and they're like, ugh. <laughs> Who you are determines what you see. And the disciples just saw a Samaritan woman, not a person, an ethnic other, a sexual other, not someone to talk to, something like. So the woman leaves the jar, one of her prized possessions, the, one of the means of security, getting water out of the well. This is how we can survive and live. She just leaves it and goes and tells people, hey, come see this man who told me everything I've ever done. Um, I think he might be the Christ. And the people listen to her. So she has somewhat of a good reputation in town despite her suffering. Um, And and so then people start to come. Meanwhile, while she's out telling people the Messiah is here, the Christ is here, coming to meet him, the disciples are like, Jesus, eat lunch. And he kind of seems frustrated. He says, I have food to eat you don't know about. And what he's getting at here is, again, there's like the, the water, living water. There's like energy that comes from calories and there's energy that comes from the will of God. What energizes me is not bread, it's faithfulness to God's will. Jesus says, I've, I, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. I see Jesus getting frustrated with the disciples here. Like you say four months to go and then the harvest, you all are sitting around going, when are we going to do ministry, Jesus? When does the harvest come, Jesus? And look at this woman who I've talked to for who knows 10 minutes is out there telling everyone the Christ is here and we're here eating lunch. Look, the harvest is ripe right now. Already, this one, verse 36 will be translated, this person, this woman who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. She's already out there doing the work of ministry, and you're her saying, when does the harvest start? Jesus takes the Jewish man, the, the Samaritan man, the, the Jewish woman, the Samaritan woman, the five times divorced, living with a man who won't even do her the dignity of marrying her, and is kind of saying, sure, you can live here for an exchange of goods and services. You can stay here, but I'm not going to call you my wife. Jesus takes this woman and elevates her as example. He says, be like her. Not this kind of quabbling religious controversy. We're going, when should we start telling people you're here? She just did it. She just went out and said, there's a man here. I think he's the Christ. Come meet him. And the town says people from the village flooded and believed because of the woman's testimony. This woman who has every reason to be bitter, every reason to be uh, why me, every reason to have written off anything else, people are going, if she is going, God is good and he cares for us and he's showing up, I'm following. And they start showing up. And they eventually say, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves that we now know indeed that he's the savior of the world. See how Jesus interacts with this woman, who we tend to assume is just a sinner, and she is a sinner, everyone's a sinner, but this is more a story of someone who has suffered and been tossed aside and oppressed and be made to be nothing. And Jesus interacts her with her gives her dignity, answers her theological questions. Who has ever talked with her theology? Not in this patriarchal 
racist society. The Jews aren't doing that. And he elevates her as example of faith, elevates her as person worth following, says to the disciples, be like this one. The harvest is now. And so the heartbreaking thing for me, as I have looked at this text this week, is that people have come to mind. I think about this awkward, the disciples say nothing. No one asks, what do you seek? No one asks, why are you talking with her? That the disciples don't see her as a person with interacting with, they just see her as something else. And I think about who are the people that I have not seen that God has put right in front of me because I was thinking about some other harvest. And the Spirit has been bringing names to mind and I have phone calls to make. And the thing that's scary to me is I go, these are the ones that I know about. The reality with blind spots is that we don't know they are there. Everyone is in theory okay with having a blind spot until someone says, here's a blind spot for you. And you go, no, it's not. (laughs) But who have you missed? Who have you looked past? Who have you seen their narrative and decided who they were before you really knew who they were? Who are the people that because of some ethnic or doctrinal or whatever it is reason, you walked around the town rather than through the town? or you assume the narrative instead of just drawing the person out. Because my list is growing slowly because I think the Spirit is being gentle with me. But here's even the good news in this text. is This woman is a real woman who Jesus really interacted with, but in the same way, she's all of us, Right? Throughout the Old Testament, there's a narrative that, you know, boy meets girl at a well. Husband and wife meet at the well, fall in love, get married. You can look up well stories, Old Testament, and see how those things, it's kind of like the, a traditional location of romantic encounter. That This woman is, in a sense, meant to represent all of us, the bride of Christ. That we have sinned and been sinned against, and our humanity has been eroded, that the number one form of oppression in the world is spiritual, that we have sinned and gone back to the well hoping it would leave us satisfied again and again and we get ashamed. I keep going back to the well. That well is full of empty promises and we keep going back to the water that dries up and we don't go to the living water. And Jesus sees us. He sees both our sin, the way that we have caused ourselves to suffer because of our own sin and he sees the sin of others in the ways that we need to be freed from the sins of other people that have harmed us. And he moves towards us and rather than using us for economic gain like most people in our lives nowadays do, he sees us as a person worth interacting with and loving and he's gentle and he draws us out and he doesn't assume a narrative. He sees us as we are, full of sin and simultaneously suffering and he treats us with dignity and honor and he will not toss us aside and disregard us like other people in our lives have and he will not die without coming back from the grave. And so I hope, I hope that Wizard Redemption Gateway see the way that Jesus treats us. That because of who he is, he sees us. And because he sees us as we are, he loves us well. That we would be people that recognize that who we are determines who we see and who we see determines how we can love. That we cannot love who we do not see. Let me pray for us.
Jesus, thank you for your kindness to this woman and the way it's a picture of your kindness towards us. God, thank you even for the, the patience you show your disciples when they just don't get it. God, and just the, 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 the beauty of you holding up the, the most overlooked woman as, as an example, forcing everyone to see her as a, as a representation of meaningful faith. God, I pray that we would have eyes to see that our, we would not see people through the lens that our culture gives us, but we'd see people through the lens that your scriptures give us. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen.